0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: The name of this particular message is The Great Chase, uh, studying the role of persecution in the building of the church. What most people would not consider a happy-go-lucky sort of message, uh, a study in persecution, a church under persecution was actually the theme that I was given. So I got signs and wonders and a church under persecution. Ironically, I love these sorts of topics. I love the ones that make us wiggle and squirm in our seat. For some reason, I'm strangely magnetically drawn to that. Uh, I used to, when I first started speaking and getting opportunities to speak in churches around the country and around the world... I found myself oftentimes speaking on martyrdom, and everyone would be uncomfortable, and I had a strange delight uh, in it. It was just like, are we a church that is ready to suffer? Well, what's funny is even the guy speaking it named Eric Lutie didn't know if he was, but it's sort of like, hey, if I'm going to be uncomfortable with these thoughts, I'm going to make you uncomfortable with them too. And However, if you look at the progression in my life, I've gone from not knowing if I was ready to suffer persecution to being handed a toolbox for how the kingdom of heaven functions and beginning to recognize that I have weapons of warfare that are, the, that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, and that no weapon fashioned against me could ever prosper, even if I lost my life in an arena was fed to wild beasts, and that whatever the enemy would wield against me would be turned unto good, because I love Jesus Christ. And that greater is he that is in me than anything that could ever come against me in this world. And I've learned that there is something that buoys me in the midst of these thoughts. As I ruminate on the fact that, okay, I want the real thing of Christianity. And then I study Christian history. I mean, I used to teach Christian history. Well, when you're studying Christian history, what are you going to see? Some very uncomfortable things. Men and women in the droves giving up their life because of what they believed that there is an antagonism that has always been there against the true church of Jesus Christ. So, Eric, you really want to be the true church? I do. But, God, I feel very weak right now. I want the real thing, but I don't feel ready to live it because I'm scared of what it may cost me. I've gone from that to the fact that I've fully counted the cost, and I have a joy in the trials and even the persecution that has come my way because of my stand. That's a shift, and I want to share it with you and speak from that secondary position. I'm not going to say that I lay in bed at night and think about being tortured and just smile. At the same time, I have a solace in my soul that says no matter what comes my way, I know I will have the requisite grace to endure it with a smile. In other words, my smile isn't given to me until I go through the trial. And so when I'm laying in bed thinking about it, I don't yet have the smile, but I have the promise of the smile. I have the promise of the grace. I have the booing strength that I know will be present if and when I face even greater challenges than I've faced so far. And the one thing I have found is that no matter what challenge I have endured up to this point, God has been faithful. So why would he fail me in the future? My faith has grown. I have a hope. And what I have cannot be stripped from me. When I used to read the Gospels, and I'd read the book of Acts, and I would see the rejoicing uh, persecuted, and they would be flogged, scourged, and then go out rejoicing, Uh, I struggled with identifying with that. I could read it and understand it as factual. I didn't have a tough time believing that it was the word of God. I had a tough time understanding what they had because I didn't have it. I've tasted it. I don't think I have it. I don't know what percentage I would even think I have of it, but I have it. I have it in measure where I understand the joy and the jubilance and the power, the upward surge that comes with knowing Jesus in the midst of difficulty. But as a church, we need to know this, not in parts. I want us to go after it. The great chase. So in the Greek, uh, just like in the Hebrew, there seems to be verb structures, three-letter verbs that build up the language. So this key verb for us in the Greek language is dio. And I'm not going to actually read you any verses that use this word. This is where... Some of the key words we're going to go through this message come from. It comes from the word dio. It's a primary verb, and it basically means to flee, to chase, or to be chased after. So it could mean you chasing. It could mean being chased. It's the concept of a chase, a fleeing, a swift movement. But it also seems to involve the fact that if it's a chase, it's hostile. There's a dimension of this verb that is a movement, either it's an aggressive movement. And so Paul may chase after a prize, for instance, and this word could be used. But it also is the base root word for the idea of persecution. So dioko, which is a verb that is based on our previous verb, dio, which means to run or flee, to press forward, to energetically exert in pursuit of an objective to drive fiercely towards a goal, to be chased, to be harassed, to be hounded, to be persecuted. So this is what we see awakened in the book of Acts. What's happened? The Holy Spirit has come and moved within the body of Christ. 3,000 have come in, another 5,000 come in. We have the explosion of the church of Jesus Christ. Stephen stands up and testifies, is stoned, Saul, they lay their, his, their, their coats at his feet, and he applauds the, the stoning of Stephen. Boom, Acts eight, we have the breakout of what's called the great persecution of the Church of Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 3:12 uses this word for persecution, and it says, "Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ, Jesus, shall suffer persecution." What's your position? In Christ, so if you live godly in Christ Jesus, so this is just normal Christianity. This isn't some special rendition of Christianity. These are those who, by faith, have entered into Jesus Christ and placed their confidence in Him. And when you live in that position, when that is your source of life, then it, there's a promise that Paul is sharing with us in and through the Word of God. In Timothy, And it says that we shall suffer persecution. Dioko. We shall be chased. Isn't that an interesting statement? We shall be harassed. We shall be pursued by the world to be destroyed. Simply put, that's what it means. Diogmos. So this is the noun. The other was a verb. But when you are being chased, when you have a whole bunch of chasing going on, you call that persecution or diogmos, and so this could also be known as the great chase so as a christian you were being brought into what we could call the great chase so one of the best things we could do for anyone who's considering believing in jesus christ is just say whoa! whoa before you do i just want you to know we're the chaste we're the ones that are being hounded and harassed you know that don't you however we're the happiest people on planet earth We have the fullness of Jesus Christ, but we are the chaste. Acts 8, 1 through 4. So remember, Stephen has just been stoned. We've been introduced to the character of Saul, who most of you know as the Apostle Paul, who's going to be knocked off his horse and have a bright light uh, that sort of uh, brings him to the end of himself and the awakening to the person of Jesus Christ. That's about to happen in the book of Acts. But right here, we have the beginnings of what we could call the great persecution. The great Diogmos, And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Of course, it started in Jerusalem. Jesus died in Jerusalem. He was buried in Jerusalem. He rose again in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God fell on that upper room in Jerusalem. The apostles went out into the streets of Jerusalem and preached, and 3,000 came to know Christ. And then we have... uh, somewhere around a week later, we have another 5,000 in Jerusalem. So this is the epicenter of the earthquake. This is the movement of grace. is starting in Jerusalem. And so God has an agenda. See, here's what's interesting. This is what I'm going to unpack for us as we go through this. Most of us have a lens that we see negative when we hear that. We're like, oh no. However, what's God's desire? I'm going to go through it in just a second. But God has a desire, and that's to take the message of what happened in Jerusalem to all the world. So how's that going to happen? Well, let's see. We need, we need to somehow get some errand boys running with this message. We need to get you guys out there. Hey, come on. We have a job to do. We have a message to share. And so what happens is the great chase begins. And it says, Against the churches is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, we know him as the Apostle Paul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now listen to this part that I made big, just so you wouldn't miss it. Therefore. As a result of this, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word.-huh? God's like, "Gotcha." You see, the chase is actually I know, this might take a little convincing to our advantage. I, I know, our, our mindset towards persecution is bad. but we don't realize that God leverages what the enemy is meaning for bad unto a powerful good, not just in our lives, but in the testimony and the witness of the kingdom of heaven the world over. This has been proven throughout the ages. You guys have heard it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, that's a strange form of seed. Death? Uh-huh. Suffering? Uh-huh. Tribulation? Uh-huh. You see, the persecution of the saints, we need God's lens on it. Instead of like, oh, oh, How horrible. We need to recognize that when the chase begins and we need to run, we trust that God is going to lead us and position us perfectly where we need to be so that we can, like those that were scattered abroad, preach the word. The amazing effects of the chase. So let's look at this. The great chase begins, and then we have the scattering. Instead of it being called the scattering, because scattering makes it sound random god is in control here and he has an agenda so instead of using the term scattering which like i said it it sounds like just sort of random willy-nilly wherever it ends up i want you to look at it through a different lens the positioning god is positioning his voice his body throughout the regions and then we have the witness a word that is used all throughout the new testament and the word itself is rather shocking in its root. It is actually the same root for martyrdom. It's those that bear witness and bear record of what they saw in Jerusalem. And then what do we have? We have the harvest. We have the reward of Christ's sufferings. We have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that begin to come into the kingdom of heaven. Why? What happened? Well, there was uh, a great persecution. Well, I thought that was bad. Well, you thought it was bad. The enemy meant it for bad. However, you need to change out your glasses. You see, when you carry the world's glasses, you look at any discomfort, any difficulty as bad. But when you put on God's glasses, you begin to realize that those very difficulties are what he is leveraging to bring about his purposes in this earth. So we're going to go back to uh, Acts 8.1 just so that you can see it afresh and just recognize this pattern. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You're facing difficulties in your life right now. And now some of us, it would be a stretch to call it persecution. In other words, some of you just are facing challenges. You know, when I look at my life, I have certain things in my life that I could grumble and complain about that are the results of people doing bad things to me. You ever had things like that? It's like, great. And because of this, I don't have the money that I would have had otherwise because I got gypped on this, right? It's the old, and a lot of things, I have a lot of interesting stories I could whip out that would actually show you that Eric and Leslie have lost a lot and had a lot of extra difficulty in their life and had to go circuitous routes around all sorts of different things to get back home to like okay, now we're back on the path, right? Instead of recognizing that at every turn, God was positioning me, you may have difficulties in your life, but you recognize that if you're in Christ, as you receive those challenges or or those diversions or those circuitous routes or those extra weights financially, instead of grumbling over them, you say, huh, okay, God, I'm going to rejoice in this. I'm going to thank you for this because you can turn this into a greater strength for your kingdom and for my own soul. And when you do that, not only do you live life with a big smile on your face, but God really does leverage it for his kingdom. Hey, I'm just giving you the great secret of how this works. There's a reason why someone can be flogged and go out rejoicing. Because they know that that is giving them extra bonus bucks spiritually to be spent in faith to say, God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. You see, every challenge gives us a greater measure. Recognizing God is going to leverage our challenges into a greater picture of his grace. So the principle, the enemy chases... And God leverages the chase to accomplish his ends. I don't know what the mental picture of this would be. But, you know, when you look at the cross, the entire Old Testament is a setup for it. It's like, did the enemy not realize? No, no, he didn't. In fact, it says if he had realized, he would not have crucified the Son of God. There is no way he would have done this if he'd known what he was doing. And so the same is true with the great persecution. If the enemy knew what he was doing, that he was spreading the body of Christ into all the world to preach the gospel, he would change his method. And yet, God always seems to leverage the enemy's antipathy towards the truth. He cannot stand by and do nothing. And so he reaches out to grab Jesus, and Jesus walks through the crowd. And he plots and he hatches plans, conspires to lay hands on the Son of God. They couldn't touch Jesus. And then Jesus, in the fullness of time, says, here I am. And the enemy's like, ha-ha! Got you! Now, who has who? You see, the enemy reaches out to grab Jesus, sticks him on a cross, and fulfills all righteousness. However... The enemy's pursuit of Jesus actually leverages our salvation. We are saved not by the enemy and by his works, but by Jesus leveraging what the enemy meant for evil into our redemption. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Acts 8.1, the church is multiplying, and God says, Hmm, we need to get this spread. He's already made it clear, because we're going to go back to Acts 1. He's going to tell the disciples what they need to do with this truth of the gospel. They need to get it into all Judea and Samaria, and then into all the parts of the earth. And I can imagine them going, how are we supposed to do that? It's like, hmm, let's see. Hey, hey, enemy. Yeah, we're doing some big stuff for Jesus over here. Yeah, we're right over here. And then, oh, they're coming. They're coming. They're coming to get you. What are we supposed to do? Run! Ah! And they go streaming out into the countryside and are positioned precisely where they need to be. And can't you just see God's brilliance? If someone ends up in Samaria, and they're like, who are you? Well, I come from Jerusalem. Why? What are you doing here? We're the Samaritans. Well, let me tell you about it. The enemy chases, God's people run, and providentially scatter into position and then become unstoppable and undeniable messengers of truth in their strategic God-assigned positions. You have a God-assigned position. Even though you woke up in the morning and said, all right, this would be the healthiest way to live my life. I would have no distractions I would have no bills that I can't pay. I would have no challenges at all in my life. You ever had that thought? It's like if you could design your life, it would be absent of the great persecution. It would be. It would be absent of any challenge, any difficulty, and yet life would not be life that way. You see, God knows what you need, and I'm not saying that he's the one tempting you. I'm not saying he's the one harassing you. I'm not saying he's the one trying to undermine you. You have an enemy Who is seeking to devour you. However, if you rest secure in your faith in Christ Jesus, you can know right now that whatever the enemy means to harm you with is only going to position you for a stronger witness. Hey, that's why we can rejoice. No matter what he does, boy, it only gets better for the kingdom of heaven. If you have the right attitude, world changed. Acts 1. So we were in Acts 8.1. Now we're in Acts 1.8. Jesus, in the next verse, is going to ascend. So these are like final statements. You shall receive power. He's just told them to go to Jerusalem and wait in that upper room until they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses. And I gave you the Greek word, Martus, to me, so you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, which we see happening in in, in Acts 8, 1, and to the ends of the earth. What is going to push them to the ends of the earth? It's not just an evangelistic fervor, even though that's part of it. It's actually persecution. You're going to notice that even Paul's journeys are directed Because of persecution. He's in chains being brought to Rome. He's being persecuted and actually being carried by, if you want to say it, the enemy himself, square into the place of testimony and witness. Who's in control here? It says in Psalm 22 that they will pierce his hands and feet. Who pierced his hands and feet? Romans that had no regard for Jesus Christ. You see, the enemies of truth are still being leveraged to reveal God's purposes. Surely this is the Son of God, says the Roman centurion as he witnesses the power of God being revealed in and through what the enemy meant for destruction of the Messiah. This is how it's always worked, because now we're the body of Christ, we're the body of that Messiah. That same calling rests upon us, and as the enemy pierces our hands and feet, it becomes a fulfillment, it becomes a message, it becomes a gospel presentation to the world around us. So, Paul is admitting that he runs. He also says that he boxes here. So I do not run aimlessly. So, uh uh-oh, the enemy's coming after me. Remember, this is the great chase. That's the very concept. It's a chase. And so the enemy comes. Well, I'm not just running running randomly. Have you ever seen a chicken with its head cut off? That's running aimlessly. Uh, And by the way, I have some history with chickens and their heads cut off. It's very strange. I'm still trying to figure out that phenomenon, but uh, I stopped studying it. (laughs) We do not run like chickens with our heads cut off. Randomly and aimlessly with uncertainty is one of the other translations we run with certainty we know who is actually in control of our running yes we're being chased but when we run we are not running aimlessly we are running in faith we are running with a full confidence that god is going to direct us and position us key idea when the chase comes I don't just run with uncertainty, not realizing that this chase has purpose and meaning. I know that God is allowing this chase to direct me perfectly into position, that my witness may have full effect for His kingdom and His glory. Chasing Paul, Paul was a chased man. That sounded funny. Uh, he was, uh, but he was. How do I say that? It doesn't sound like the word chased. Uh, he was pursued by the enemy. So what does Paul say? Everyone's like, oh, I'm so sorry that you were chased. I'm so sorry that you were pursued and harassed and beaten down by the enemy. What does Paul say? Remember, he's in, he's in jail right now. He's in prison right now. He's in chains in Philippians as he writes this. But I want you to know, church at Alexley, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I don't want you to feel bad for me. Don't you realize that all this chasing, all of this pursuit, all this persecution, all this tribulation, all this suffering has actually been leveraged by God to further the gospel? What a mentality. So what happened to him? What was happening to him that furthered the gospel? Well, he gives us great detailed accounts of it. Of course, we have the book of Acts, but then we also have the great summation in 2 Corinthians that says, from the Jews five times i received 40 stripes minus one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked night and a day i've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of water and perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the gentiles and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea in perils among false brethren and weariness and toil and selflessness often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness this guy was chased this guy was pursued He is an incredible picture of what it means to stand up for truth and what happens. Well, the enemy is going to come after you if you do. One of the number one reasons many of us struggle with standing boldly for truth is we don't want to be chased. We don't want to be pursued. The enemy says, hey, if you do that, I'm coming after you. And what you have to learn to say is, I already know that. And I know that whatever you do in chasing me, I'm only going to end up running into God's exact plan for me. So, bring it on. What were the effects of this chase? So, Paul is being chased. He is being pursued all over the place. Everywhere he goes, he has antagonism towards him. I mean, this guy really took it on the chin. He did. His entire body was bruised and beaten down to a pulp. And that's not an exaggeration. When you receive stripes, 39 stripes, your back would literally be a pile of flesh. It would just be a mass of tissue and blood. And then it heals over. And he had that five times. This is extreme. And that's just one of the things on his list. He was stoned, by the way. That means he's knocked to the ground. They take heavy boulders and smash your skull. And as far as we know, he died, was carried outside the city, and popped back to life. Probably with a head that was shaped a little like this. He bore in his body the effects of persecution. The effects of the chase, but they could not stop him. And everywhere he went, he only used all of those, those scourgings, those trials, those tribulations, those beatings, those buffetings, to witness all the louder. So what were the effects of this chase upon Paul. Listen, and you'll see this pattern, which is revealed in the book of Acts. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, said this about Paul. Now, Demetrius does not like Paul. Demetrius is concerned about his own pocketbook, and so in the city of Ephesus, we have a threat known as Paul the Apostle. And this is what he testifies about Paul. Listen to this. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. What this man, this man who hates Christianity, is acknowledging is that this man has basically changed the known world with this gospel. Thank you, Demetrius. You can sit down now. just wanted to get his witness account on this. That the enemies of the gospel know they must stop this man. But the more they pursue him, the more his message spreads. How frustrating is that? You stone him and bring him outside the city, he is dead and he pops back to life. You know what he did? He went right back into the same city. We can't get rid of this guy. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. The enemy hates you. You don't need to take it personally. It's because you're in Christ. He really hates Christ. However, he despises you as well. And he wants you dead. The fact that you're alive right now, you could just look at it as a testimony that there is a preservation upon you. Because the moment you enter into Christ, war on. You have a challenge, and you're facing challenges. You see, the person down the street who doesn't like Jesus has challenges because they live on planet Earth. But you have challenges because you live on planet Earth, and then you have bonus challenges because you are being chased. Now, most of you have not figured that into the mathematical equation of your life, and you can't figure out why you have difficulties. Well, you have life difficulties because life has challenges. It's a fallen world. But then you have what we could call in Christ challenges. You have an enemy, and the enemy has limited resources. I don't know if any of you have ever heard me talk about the enemy's resources. But what we know is that the enemy does not have an infinite number of uh, dangerous masked men at his uh, beck and call. He has one-third the angelic host. One-third. Mathematically speaking, that means God has double the angels. But it also shows you that the number is finite and can be counted. And a lot of them are in chains, So what we do know is the enemy has limited resource and he is not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. Don't get him mixed up with God. He is limited in his sphere and in his scope. I'm not saying he's not brilliant. And I'm not saying he's not more powerful than we are. He is. But he is not God. And so if he is going to wield the limited resources that he has wisely, where is he going to spend them? He's going to spend them at the points of greatest threat. If the guy down the street refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ as his Lord, spurns the Son of God, he has natural problems because he is controlled by the flesh. And the wages of his sin leads to a corrosion of his soul, his mind, his body, his life, his marriage, and his family. The enemy doesn't need to send one demon that way. All he wants to do is make sure, check in on the guy every now and then, and make sure he's still falling apart. And if he ever sees a movement against that man's soul, then he'll start to station a guard. However, the enemy is a strategist with his resources. And you represent threat number one on planet Earth to him. That's what you take as a compliment. It's like, he's threatened. He's threatened. I'm just a little sheep. He knows the power that we have access to in Christ Jesus. So what we see is Demetrius' testimony is precisely that the chase that came against Paul led to Paul being positioned around the world to give witness of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, he is being led of the Holy Spirit, but he's being led of the Holy Spirit in hot pursuit of the enemy. Every town he comes into, he has to hide. He has to do what he's doing strategically because there's a chase. In every place he goes, there's a chase. And God is leveraging that chase Unto the full glory of his name. The marks of true discipleship. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall. So I put in some parentheses here just to sort of give us an amplified understanding of this. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall. What's your position? So you're in Christ. This is you. You shall be vigorously chased, pursued with evil venom, and harassed with earthly sufferings. Hmm, sure you want to be a Christian? you, You do know that this comes with Christianity, don't you? Why is it that I can say that with such a cavalier attitude? See, I love Christianity. I love the drama of being in Christ. I know that greater is he that is in me than he that is pursuing me. And I know that he that's pursuing me is only going to lead to a greater glory for the one I love. Everything the enemy's trying to do to stop this is only going to magnify the majesty of my king. Do you see why we can live with a smile? It's a smirk, it's a wry one. We look up and we go, God, you got this whole thing under your control. I trust you. So, what does Paul say? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Son of God incarnate. And he bore wounds. Still wounds that even after his resurrection body were still there as a testimony of his love. As a testimony of his sufferings. There's something in heaven that seems to value sufferings. And signals or marks of that suffering. You know, it's a strange thing. I think for most of us, we think, okay, resurrection body, let's get rid of the nail wounds. Let's just sort of restore this here. But However, what you see is that even in the resurrection body of Jesus... You still have, uh, you know, a hole in his side. You have nail wounds in his hands and his feet. What a strange thing! It begins to show you the treasure that these are in the heavenly realms. These are not bad marks. Somehow God has converted what the enemy meant for evil into a profound picture of salvation. So Paul bears in his body the stigma is actually the word in the Greek. The stigma, the marks of the Lord Jesus. So introducing the fellowship of the burning heart. All throughout history, Christian history, for the past few hundred years, this term has been wielded, and it is, it's an enunciation of those that recognize that they're being hotly pursued and rejoice in it. They are unwilling to bend to the cor- correctness or the political correctness or the social correctness of their age. They are only desirous to please their God. And they are moved by a passionate love for their king. How do you explain these sorts of people that don't fear death, that don't fear suffering, that that smile at tribulation? You ever had someone like that in your life? You're really wanting to have a juicy complaint, and they say, well, you should rejoice in that. This is a great opportunity for God to work. That's not the person you want to talk to right now. You see, a Christian It isn't a rain on everyone's parade. It's like a buoy in everyone's parade. It's like, you don't want to go up. You want to go down. You want to, you know, nurse yourself pity. Christian's the wrong person to be around. Or maybe I should say it this way. One of the fellowship of the burning heart is the wrong person to be around. We convert everything in our thinking into God's grace. He's going to use this. Watch what God's going to do in and through this. Every single situation becomes opportunity for God. So we're going to call these guys the mark bearers. Because they bear in their bodies, they bear in their souls, they bear in their lives the marks of the chase. You see, they have stood up for Jesus, and guess what? In their life, they have some dings, they have some shrapnel. They have difficulties that others, in their exact same circumstances, that didn't know Christ, would not have had. I have difficulties in my life... That if I had not chosen to follow Jesus, just simply would not be there. And yet they're there. They're marks in my life. I bear in my life certain marks, not to the degree that Paul did. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to compare myself. I'm just saying this is just what we can all say, those of us that have chosen to walk in narrow way, to follow our Savior. How will you recognize those of the burning hearts? I'm going to give 30 scriptural defining attributes of those who bear the marks in their body, in their life. See, many of us, especially in America, our persecution is different. We have not had a physical persecution. I'm not saying not that some of us haven't. But I'm saying, for the most part, it's very different than what they're facing in China, what they're facing in North Korea, what they're facing in Syria. Many of you still have your head on your shoulders. But if you were living in Syria with the same passion, you're dead. So you bear in your life certain marks, but there are even greater marks that we can have. And so how will you recognize those of the burning heart? It's not just that they had their head lopped off or that they're in prison. Because in America, it doesn't always look that way. It takes on a different appearance. And so if we go through the scriptural account, yes, we could include the fact that You know, men are crucified, men are, you know, uh, thrown from tops of buildings, men are dragged behind chariots. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of stories throughout Christian history of what happens to those that follow. But in America, what does it look like? Well, it's more subtle and psychological in its attack. And we've gone from being a Christian nation to no longer even just being a post-Christian nation. We have slid into what I would say are the beginnings of an anti-Christian nation where to espouse the ideals of Christ Jesus actually are considered a crime against our culture. You keep that thought to yourself. This is a public square. We don't allow that here. Well, who's talking? Who's talking? The government? Who's talking to us? We can't espouse Jesus in a public square? We can't, oh, this is a government facility. We can't talk about Jesus. Wait a minute. Who's talking? Jesus has become the great problem in this country. Have you ever had the thought as a Christian that every other thought pattern, every other ideology, every other philosophy is considered completely fine and even invited in? No matter how false it is, no matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how stupid it may be, but Christianity is not. That would be called anti-Christ. Follow me? This is the culture that we are being nurtured and grown up in. We have become used to it, but we must recognize that we are being chased, even if it's not the chase that we see in Acts yet. We can still remain in our house, but there's still a chase after our soul. It's a chase to try and get us into a corner where we give up a public pronouncement of our faith. We just keep silent on these points. Where I no longer preach the clear word, I to have to preach a blurry word, otherwise I'm gonna lose my position as a pastor. It's a chase, it's just different. So let's look at the 30 defining attributes from scripture. The fellowship of the burning heart are those who are armed with the same mind as Christ was armed, prepared to suffer in the body. That's actually what we're supposed to have. We're supposed to be armed with the same mind, prepared to suffer in this body. They are those who do not consider it strange to encounter fiery trials. Why would I consider it strange? I'm a Christian. I I knew this. This is what comes with the territory. There are those who rejoice for the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. There are those who are unashamed of the fact that they suffer for righteousness. There are those who consider it the highest privilege to fill up their bodies, fill up in their bodies, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. They are those who are immovable and undaunted in affliction, for they know that they are commissioned, even appointed, to suffering affliction and tribulation. They are those who are troubled on every side, yet do not get distressed. Those who are perplexed, but do not despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. They are those who are always bearing about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in their body. There are those who yearn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and desire to be conformed to his death. There are those who are not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, but are partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. There are those who know that all things, whether it be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, or any other affliction, work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. They are those who accept with joy the fact that for Christ's sake, they are killed all the day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Do you notice any commonalities in this list? I mean, this is, we're only at number 12, and there's 30 of these. So if you're saying, well, I don't know what the biblical support is for what Eric's saying today, we could say, it's the Bible. This is actually what the new covenant believer started with. This is how they lived. This is the entire mind of Christ applied to how you live in this body. Are you prepared to suffer? Because you're a Christian, you will. This is how we pop out of the spiritual womb. This is how we're grown up. This is the milk we drink. This isn't some bonus version for when you decide to be a missionary to North Korea. This is the basics. So if you are in this room and this is shocking to you, it's high time you were introduced to real Christianity. This is what the Bible teaches at the most basic levels. You're a Christian. Speak, live it boldly. Shine the light that you've been given. But if I do that, then they, uh uh-huh, do you need me to finish that for you? Then they will chase you. Yeah, that's right. And that chase will be under my control. I will not allow them to chase you beyond what I know you can handle. And I will only allow them to chase you into the exact positions that I have defined for you. I'm going to trump every single thing The enemy does against you. Oh, okay. I like this, God. I thought you would. There are those who know that all afflictions and all trials shall turn to their salvation through prayer and through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There are those who are utterly confident that they shall not be ashamed for the confidence they have placed in Jesus Christ, and whether it's by life or by death, Christ shall be magnified in their body. There are those who know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. There are those who are gladly spent for the glory of God and faint not through the difficult trials, imprisonments, and the many afflictions. There are those who are confident that as suffering and afflictions tear down and decompose their outward body, their inward man is renewed day by day. There are those who know that their current afflictions work for them a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There are those who know that if their earthly house, their body, were dissolved, they have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. They are those who will gladly spend their bodies and spill their blood because of love for Jesus Christ and for his body, the church. They are those who rejoice and are exceeding glad when they are reviled, persecuted, and all manner of evil is spoken against them falsely for the sake of Jesus Christ. They are those who rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. There are those who are exceeding joyful in all their tribulation. There are those who consider it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds. There are those who know that where the sufferings of Christ abound, so the consolation, comfort, and satisfaction of Christ abounds. There are those whose hope is steadfast and whose endurance is strong, though they be pressed out of measure above their human strength to handle, insomuch that they despair even of life. There are those who boast, whose boast is in their Christ, his sufferings, and the fact that they are privileged to share in the fellowship of those sufferings. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often with scourging, stoning, stripes, beatings, shipwrecks, perils, weariness, painfulness, watchings, hunger, thirst, fasting, cold, and nakedness. There are those who endure all things for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the elect. There are those who do not consider the sufferings of this present time as worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in them. There are those who know it was fitting for Jesus to become perfect through suffering, and it is also fitting for them to be perfected in the same manner. It's a quotation of New Covenant Christianity. This is how we live. We live with the understanding that we have Jesus, now and always, and that he fills us all in all. He is our all in all. He is everything that will give us life, eternal And even now, we have it now. But because we represent the truth and that light of the world now shines in us and the world in which we live craves darkness, they're going to want to shut down the light and turn it off. We know that. When we come to Jesus, we recognize it's like turning on a light switch in a dark room. It's going to expose things. And this world that loves its darkness wants this light out. We understand this. And so when we initiate those first steps forward in Christianity, we recognize, light on. We don't try and hide our light. Light on. We are a church that is bold to proclaim the light of Jesus Christ. And yes, we fully understand the cost of doing it. We will be the chaste. We will be the hunted. We will be the ones that the world, though they try and be politically correct in their terminology of it, want us dead. It's okay. I know it seems a little extreme, a little you know overdone maybe, because we're in America. That's not the way that they behave in America. If there is darkness still residing in this country, then that darkness doesn't want you here. It's simply put. We, ironically, love them. And we're going to chase after them the whole while they're chasing us. Sort of like a dog chasing a tail around. However, we can trust that as the persecution amplifies towards us, that God is going to amplify His grace in working in and through us for His witness. The pattern of the burning heart. Now, this is a fascinating statement. I just read you 30 statements in the New Testament about our expectations as Christians in this body, in this time frame, here on earth, as Christians in Christ. 23 of the 30 above descriptions were given by Paul the Apostle. So that means Paul is well-versed in understanding what we're talking about today. Listen to what Paul says. Just in case you're thinking, well, that was Paul. That was first century Christianity. They had struggles back then that we in America don't have. He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. You mean like being chased? like being hunted like five times receiving 39 stripes well i mean yeah that's not the only thing i'd also say go after jesus christ desire to know him and to be found in him and share in the fellowship of his sufferings and the god of peace will be with you doesn't that sound like the exact opposite of what you'd expect if you follow paul and imitate his pattern of living uh talk about an absence of peace No, the God of peace will be with you if you follow this path. Therefore, I urge you, says Paul, imitate me. Uh, But you like lived one big life of chase. Your life was hard. He says, yeah, follow me as I have followed Christ. Imitate me, guys. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a uh, pattern. Uh, I, you know, Paul's not really a pattern for us. He's just sort of a special Christian, and so he lived his life. But that was like a special call. You know, I, I, he was called to the Gentiles, and you know that's just a special call. And I'm not called to just that. I'm you know called to raise my family and you know have a job and witness in my community. Mm-hmm, sure, that could even be true. But you have a pattern in Paul. Paul lived according to the pattern of the body of Christ, the Messiah. And the way he lived is how Christ lived. And what Paul is saying is, look, I've patterned myself after the Christ. You pattern yourself after me. You've seen me walk this. I'm not, he says, I'm not Christ, but I have the power of Christ in me. And so this is how you exercise it. This is what it looks like. You have me for a pattern. Follow it. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now that's a hard one for us to sometimes grasp, that Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. And yet that's just what it says. There's something about sufferings that does a perfecting work. And it's all part of God's economy. This is how he thinks and he reasons. That I may know, says Paul, and this is in Paul's great list of what he craves in knowing Jesus, but listen to this key one. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Uh, Being conformed, being made like clay into a form of what? Christ's death. That's what I long for. I desire to share in the fellowship of my Messiah's sufferings. How many of you are praying that prayer? This is the prayer of the Christian. This is what we are to imitate, yearn for, desire. May we be patterned after what moved Paul. Do we understand that in and through that suffering of the Messiah came forth a river of abundant life to the world? Do we understand that as we join ourselves to that pattern that out of us will flow a river and that river will go into all the world and bring forth green life? Do we understand the pattern? You are here and you have one life to live. Do you want your life to impact this world or you just wanna somehow hang on and make it through? I, for one, desire to be utilized by God to bring life. And then God says, well, can you do it my way? God, I'm an American. I'm not built for suffering. I'm built for ease and comfort. Can you do it that way? Can't do it that way, Eric. You want to look around you and see the results of that. We want true Christianity. I know it. Well, we need the pattern, and we need to embrace that pattern. And recognize this is how it has always come to this earth. It doesn't mean we go after persecution. We don't chase down Roman soldiers, punch them in the nose, and then and, and run. We know that light itself shining from us, the love. Jesus was perfect love, perfect purity, perfect peace, perfect everything, and guess what? They killed him. All you have to do is switch on the light switch, and it will do the work. Live it. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, or in his body, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. When you allow this suffering, this persecution, this chase, you embrace it, it purifies you. And you no longer have the selfish bent for how you're living on this earth, but you actually begin to live for someone else, for his glory. Changing our attitudes towards the chase. So in 1 Thessalonians, we have Paul giving us the will of God in Christ Jesus. So many of us are trying to figure out the will of God for our life. Am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to marry this person? Am I supposed to take this job? Let's start with the basics. Rejoice always. And I put in parentheses, this is my addition. Even while being chaste. Pray without ceasing, even for those chasing you. In everything, give thanks, even for the privilege of being chaste. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You see, there's the will of God right there. You need that attitude. That attitude will give you a booing strength in your life, and you can face any difficulty, any challenge, with a smile, with a skip in your step. I don't know who it was. Was that like Dick Van Dyke? He does something like it, clicks his heels. I don't know. How do people do that. It? It's rather dangerous. I'm going to go tumbling into the audience here. But it's that that picture. Even though I can't do it, you go up and you click your heels like that. That's how we live as Christians. Blessed are you. Did you hear that? Blessed. Makarios, supremely happy. (laughs) Okay, so supremely happy are you when men shall hate you. Uh, You know, um, uh, Jesus, who, by the way, is the one saying this, uh, I don't feel extremely happy right now. I'm hated. Jesus could look back at at us and say, you don't understand, do you? You see, you need me living inside of you because this is my attitude. This is what my nature does in relation to these things. Supremely happy are you when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice you in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. For in the like manner did they unto Jesus. For in the like manner did they unto Paul the Apostle. For in like manner did they unto Peter, James, and John, the 12. For in like manner did they to the early church. For in like manner have they always done this to the fellowship of the burning heart. So rejoice, leap for joy, you're one of the company. Welcome to the family. This is what we have in this earth. This is our season to shed abroad that fragrance of Jesus. And there's no better way to shed that fragrance abroad than to allow the Holy Spirit to take what the enemy is meaning to harm you and actually cause it to spread and to scatter throughout the earth. Adopting the ancient attitude of leaping. I've been practicing over the past years leaping. Because when I first started reading these things, I would just stare at the page and go, okay, leap. That means I need to you know, probably have a good attitude. So I've decided, and I don't know that it's necessary. I'm not going to try and make you feel like you have to do external leaping. I've just been doing it. I'm not the sort of guy that dances. If you ever saw me growing up, we'd have school dances, and I'd watch these guys. They were really cool and how they danced. And then I'd get out there and... Uh, It just was always terrible. It it always looked bad. People would always laugh, which made me feel all the more insecure. So when it gets to something like leaping, it's even more out of my comfort zone. To leap? I mean, how awkward is that? At least dancing has the potential to be cool. Leaping, no potential there. (laughs) And yet I've decided that I am going to do what scriptures say. It actually is the word agaleia, which means a springing up, a shooting up. And so I've been going up. When bad things happen, I will deliberately leap. And it's not because I feel like leaping. I do it because there's a command to leap. It's sort of like I always say that it's the gate valve. There's a whole bunch of grace here, but there's a closed gate valve. And so what we do is we obey scripture. We obey the command of Jesus, and we leap. And what that does is that opens the gate valve, and suddenly the emotion, the joy, the grace can flood in through our agreement with him. We are grieved by many trials. So how are you doing when you're grieved by many trials? Listen to what Peter says. We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's not what most of us do. We are reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. How you doing? And yet, blessed are we. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. And yet, we may be glad with exceeding joy. We endure. We are endure, enduring tribulations, and yet we are exceeding joyful. We face trials and testings, and yet we count it all joy. How can we leap at such a time? Now, if any of you have ever been falsely accused, you'll notice that the exact opposite of leaping begins to take place in the body. The human body goes through a crumpling effect. It's an emptying of strength. If you've ever gone through an extreme attack against your character, against your person, what you'll notice is that your gut will empty and your knees will begin to give out. It's really weird because our very foundation begins to give way, our core is attacked. And this is right when God says, "Uh, I want you to leap right now. And what's interesting is the very physical aspects of our body that would help with leaping are gone. And so to leap in a time like that is to depend on Him. And even though your knees are knocking, to literally choose to go up, the enemy presses down. It's called oppression, depression. Self-pity is in this direction. However, we choose in those moments to do what heaven is bidding us to do. And when we do, you will find that your core will be strengthened and the Spirit of God will flush through you with a greater movement of power than you knew before the trial. However, you have to first obey. How can we leap at such a time? Because we see what others do not see. If you've ever heard my message on forgiveness, the enemy comes in. We have this beautiful plot of land. It's our meadow and it's our inner life. It's been changed by Jesus Christ. There's flowers blooming everywhere. And this enemy of ours, this person who hates us, we have no issue with them, but they choose to bring in their truckload of manure and back up onto our property and dump it right smack in the middle of our favorite spot where we'd like get up in the morning do some twirls and look at the clouds and lay in the grass and look you know watch the birds fly over that was our special spot and their junk is all over it oh you see there's different ways you can handle that the earth will tell you to resent to be bitter. Dr. Phil goes at least in the right direction. He says, no, you should forgive them. You just need to mentally say, all right, I'm going to let that go and not let it be an issue. However, what it leads to is a dullness of soul. You don't actually care for that person, but at least you don't hold bitterness and resentment. Jesus goes beyond that. He says, let's till that in. Let's turn that that the enemy meant for evil into fertilizer in our life. All right. Now I want you to build a little memorial here, a little bench, and I want you to sit in it and pray blessing upon them. Leverage what the enemy means to destroy you and turn it into a nuclear weapon against him. That is how we as Christians function. We don't function as the world does. We're not caught up in the enemy's manure. Saying, oh! We till it in. When we leap, it's the equivalent of going rototillant. Vroom, <laughs> And actually turning this into literally the most, I mean, the best soil on earth. You know how much people pay for that type of manure? I mean, some of you have gone out this spring and bought a whole bunch of manure. Little did you know, all you do is live as a Christian, you'll get a whole bunch of it. <laughs> the joy is set before us. You see, as Christians, we have something that is before us, it's joy. No matter what happens in this life, not only do I have an eternal reward in the presence of Jesus Christ, not only, but I also will see everything that I endure, everything that I go through with his mind, it will be turned into a great glory. It's a joy that is before us. In other words, it's ahead of our movement. We know that when we live this way, it will result in this. So what was set before Jesus? How did he endure the cross? He endured it this way. This is the pattern of the kingdom. It says, Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despised in the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. What do you want to grow up to be? So, just in light of this conversation, you know, some of you could say, well, like an actor in Hollywood. I'd like to be an engineer, I'd like to be an astronaut. There's all sorts of various options. However, I would like to encourage every single one of you, not that you can't be an astronaut, not that you couldn't be an actor or an engineer, I want each of you to desire to grow up to be like Jesus. Not because you will be Jesus, but Jesus' intent is to indwell you so that your life would showcase his. And there is no higher calling than to be a Christian, than to be a Christ-bearer, an image-bearer, so that when this world sees you, they get a clear picture of who he is and what he did on the cross. They could come to know Jesus. That is the highest calling. So, that we would be runners like Paul was. That we would be like the early church. That we could be like those apostles who literally ran for a living all throughout the earth to share the glory of Jesus Christ. So, all of this, you guys remember our our primary verb, deal? And then that became the base, the root for the verb of persecution. And then diogma, which was the noun persecution, the great persecution that breaks out. It's the chase. It's the great chase. Now this is what's amazing. In the church, there is a key functionality. And that word for this role in the church, its root is the exact same. Diakonos. The deacons. The deacons in a church are the hunted, the chased. I mean, that's literally the root in it. Isn't that fascinating? But the way we use it, the deacons, the persecuted, the errand runners of the church, they've been given a job take this light into the world. Stephen, he's a runner who actually changed the life of Saul. You could look at it that way. That's literally the leverage, the pry bar. That unlocks this man named Saul. And he becomes the apostle Paul. We see that when God takes a man. Who then runs his errands to testify before the world. We see the change of the world. And then Paul. Stephen never got out of Jerusalem. But Paul changed the world. You see was Stephen's life wasted. Were his sufferings of no effect. Oh far from it. You see, the persecution that comes upon us is the pry bar that is opening up the lives of the Pauls around us. Whatever we face, whatever we go through, no matter the difficulty, when we embrace it and receive it with joy, with thanksgiving, God will leverage it to the scattering of his seed throughout this earth. So they are the ones that risk their lives to carry the message the chaste, those that find supreme delight in the grand adventure of being chaste. So typically, a deacon is merely a servant. But more specifically, they're the errand runner in a church. Isn't that an interesting statement? They're the runners. They're the ones that carry the light in a church. Every single one of us should esteem such a position in the church of Jesus Christ to be the servants, to be the errand runners of the light of Jesus
0: We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.